1: You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.
2: Hello and welcome to episode seven of Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien, here on Joe. And it is an interview with a chap you may not have heard of. You probably should have done, but I'll forgive you if you haven't. Bill Browder. I don't want to spoil the story actually he has a tale to tell that will remind you in places of a a James Bond film or novel and yet it is all completely true it is all happening and he's the first unfiltered guest who has in the course of the last four weeks been on Interpol's most wanted list and frankly if that doesn't make you listen I don't know what will. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Unfiltered. I'm delighted to welcome Bill Browder into the Unfiltered studio. Bill, I hope hope you won't take this the wrong way. You're probably the first interviewee in the series who isn't a household name, but you are the first that's recently appeared on the Interpol Most Wanted list. So I guess it's... You know, swings and roundabouts. I'd, I'd rather be a household name than on the Interpol <laughs> list, but you know,
3: <laughs> here, here I am, one way or the other.
2: <laughs> we will, we will get you are a New York Times bestseller, of course, with, with your account of the story that we're going to explore together. Um, Red Notice, but we'll end, I think, with the with the Interpol, because that will take us up to up to the latest developments in a story that began. Well, I, I mean, for me, it began in in, in about two thousand and six, I think, when you were first refused entry into Russia. But then the first time I met you, I discovered that your grandfather had been himself uh, a prominent communist politician in America. So in many ways, the Bill Browder story begins before your life did.
3: Yeah, so so, so the Bill Browder story uh, begins in the 1920s, actually, long before I was ever born. Um, it begins with my grandfather, um, Earl Browder, who was a, uh, a labor union organizer from Wichita, Kansas. <clears throat> and... Um, he was so good at organizing the union that he was spotted by the communists. And they said to him, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Why don't you come to Moscow and check it out? And so my grandfather, Earl, um, in 1927, went to Moscow. Um, he, um, When he got to Moscow, he did the, uh, the very first thing that most young American men do when they get to Moscow. He met a Russian girl um, who became my grandmother. And... Um, uh, And uh, he spent five years in Moscow. My father was born there. And then in 1932, he was sent back by the Communist Party um, to become head of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. Uh, He ran for president against Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 and 1940. He was then imprisoned by Roosevelt in 41, um, uh, pardoned by Roosevelt in 42 expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist, <laughs> and then um, persecuted viciously in the
2: 1950s for being a communist. So this is my uh, family legacy. At that point there, expelled from the Communist Party for being too capitalist, and then persecuted for being too communist. There's, there's a there's a dichotomy there that resonates, isn't there? <laughs> well,
3: it's... Um, I mean, it, it, it shows the absurdity of, of the entire sort of political world that mm. um, on one hand you can be um, so, so unsuccessful as a communist, they kicked him out of the party. And in fact, the, 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 <laughs> uh, communi- at the at that time, Stalin then started to murder all of his followers around the rest of Eastern Europe. But that didn't excuse him for being a communist when the McCarthy era began in the 1950s. And, and uh, it was a terrible time for my family. My father, um, who was a, a genius young mathematician, who had just graduated from Princeton's PhD program, couldn't get a job in any university in America because of who his father was. Um, uh, he was then drafted into the army. Um, uh, then they figured out that he was the son of a communist. And so he, they be- he became a security risk in the army and they made him pump gas. So he's a man with a PhD in math, made him pump gas
2: for three years. How conscious of this were you as a young man? How conscious were you of this incredibly sort of rich family tree?
3: Well, uh, so I was growing up in this family of—I uh, I wouldn't say my my father was a communist. He wasn't. He he no. was a mathematician, but all academics that <clears throat> in that stage of of time were left very left wing. And so I was brought up in the dinner table believing that all businessmen were crooks and that all capitalism was bad. All property is theft. Uh, uh, all all those things that, that sort of go along with sort of lefty. But the lessons uh, didn't necessarily stick. So uh, well, I, so I was a. Uh, a rebel in my family I, I uh, uh, so I should say my father was a, a, a math genius he went he he went to university at the age of 14 finished 18 had his PhD in math from Princeton at 21 my brother was also wow. a genius um, uh, he skipped high school entirely went to university University of Chicago at the age of 15 uh, finished when he was 18 um, also PhD physicist so I was the um, dummy in my family <laughs> um, I was the really stupid guy and and as as sort of my reaction and rebellion from this family of geniuses and communists—I decided that the one way I could really differentiate myself from my family was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist, and and that's what I did. And um, and it really did offend my my parents, my brother, my cousins. So you were me. rather a good
2: capitalist.
3: Well, I didn't. I wasn't at that point. I was just uh, declaring myself right. a capitalist. But uh, I um, <clears throat> I ended up at Stanford Business School. Um, and I was graduating that, uh, Stanford business school in 1989, which was a very auspicious year because that was the year that the Berlin wall came down. And <clears throat> I looked at my situation and I said, well, my grandfather was the biggest, um, capitalist. Um, I mean, sorry, my grandfather's biggest communist in America and, um, the Berlin wall has just come down. Why don't I, why don't I try to become the biggest uh, capitalist in Eastern Europe? And that, and that's what I set out to do. And, and. I eventually achieved that goal um, through a few uh, roundabouts and, and. Well, tell us
2: why. tell us a little bit more. I and mean, you, you, you essentially um, arrived in the former Soviet Union at a time when they were crying out in a way for Western business acumen, and you filled your proverbial boots and and those of your investors. Well, so 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 what happened
3: was I, I ended up uh, moving to London first before I moved to Russia, and. Um, I had a, a variety of jobs, but in in um, 1992, I spotted um, the Russian privatization program. Mm-hmm. So basically, <clears throat> Russia was also going through this transition from communism to capitalism. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was the president of Russia at the time, said, um, well, I, I know what we're going to do to create capitalism. We're going to make everybody capitalists. And how we are going to do that? We're going to give away all state property for free. And they created this thing called the Mass Privatization Program, with the intention of giving all this property away for free, it didn't actually work out the way they intended um, because 22 oligarchs ended up owning um, 40% of the country. But there were little crumbs falling off the table, which were the shares of these companies, these big oil companies, these big gas companies, aluminum companies, et cetera. And I did the math back then, and I realized that that basically, um, once these things were given away for free, they started trading on a, a sort of highly fragmented stock market and they traded at a 99.7% discount to the valuation of similar companies in the West. And I said to myself, if if um, I can invest in these companies, buy shares, and they don't re-nationalize them, they don't expropriate them and take them away from us, then um, uh, these sh- shares should rise in value very dramatically. Maybe go to a 98% discount or 97% discount, and you make you know four or 10, 20 times your money. And so I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. I named it after the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, which is where they keep all the Russian treasures. I moved to Moscow in 1996, and I started investing. And I, I ended up attracting um, some Western investors to invest in my fund. And it goes spectacularly well. It goes better than any long. straight away. Unbelievable. Mm. So in the first year and a half, my fund went up 850%. So if you put $1,000... In, it'd be worth $8,500 uh, in, in a year and a half. And I went from effectively zero to, more than, to managing more than a billion I, um, I dollars. Um, <throat> I was featured on the front page of the New York Times business section. I was in the Financial Times. They drew a picture of me in the Financial Times. I was featured in all these different magazines and newspapers as being some kind of financial genius. Um, My clients were sending their private jets to to Moscow to pick me up to take me to the south of France to Toast me on their yachts. Um, I was the best performing fund manager in the world in 1997 And this is all at the ripe age of 31 Wow, and and generally when any of these great things happen to you 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 should celebrate But if they all happen to you together at the age of 31 um, uh, On on Wall Street, that's the biggest sell signal there ever was But I of course I didn't see that as a 31 year old and so I didn't sell and uh, in 1998 the russian government uh, defaulted on their bonds they devalued their currency by 75 and my billion dollars um, went down 90 percent. i lost 900 million dollars from my clients and um, they uh, needless to say they were no longer sending their <laughs> jets to take me to their yachts anymore i was uh, really persona non grata and I, and I was very ashamed of myself for having been so naive and optimistic about russia and, and i was very determined to try to um, get
2: my clients out of
3: this hole they've done in. So
2: what had changed in Russia in the interim? What had what had signaled this kind of massive reverse on the capitalist project? Well, the, the main
3: thing that happened was that they were complete, there was no laws, there was no rules. There was, it was complete mayhem. It was Wild West, it was chaos. And the whole thing just kind of came unstuck. And it became particularly unstuck after the devaluation and default because the guys
2: who owned these companies, these Russian oligarchs... Who were they before? You mentioned 22 oligarchs ending up with 40% of the national stock. What were they doing prior to becoming owners of these power were, companies and water companies? So th- these guys were just the sharpest elbows, uh, elbowed guys in the room. Ba- basically,
3: what, what they had figured out, um, how, how did they end up in this position? They just started breaking the rules left, right, and center. And, the, and the, pretty much each one of these guys, what they did was, at, at the time at, at, before they did all this privatization... Uh, they allowed people to set up their own banks, and what these guys, most of them, set up banks in Russia and at the time, there was like a the inflation rate was like two hundred and fifty percent and and the government bonds were yielding above inflation, so you could get like a three hundred percent yield by buying go, uh, Russian government bonds. and so what these oligarchs did and this uh, very few people know this and this is this is like the origin of their wealth <coughs> is they would set up these banks and then they would go to the minister of defense or the minister of of telecommunications and say listen put all the ministry's money on deposit at my bank for no interest and and then I'll pay you 10 million dollars in a swiss bank at the end of the year and so these guys would put like let's say half a billion dollars on deposit at their bank they would then take that half a billion dollars and then go buy russian government bonds that yielded 300% and then they would they would they you know when they came back for to withdraw their deposit they would take a fraction of the money and they would have all this money and then the the minister would have $10 million in a Swiss bank account. And then once they got that money, then they would start bribing um, different um, uh, government uh, ministers in the privatization program and the finance ministry, et cetera, to do various things for them. And then they would rig auctions for the privatizations and, and so on and so forth. And as a result of this, um, these guys very quickly became from, from nowhere. Else. Yes. just uh, The only thing they had was chutzpah and extremely sharp elbows and that willingness just sort of
2: brazenly break laws. Sharp elbows perhaps been something of a euphemism. I mean, they, they'd have used rather.
3: These were criminals. I mean, yes. uh, in my opinion. Yes. Um and, or, or some of them were, anyways. And uh, and and these guys went went crazy. But and they, they pulled it off. And they pulled it off and got a lot of money. And um and and they were the ones who owned these companies. They were the ones who owned. When I say owned, they owned fifty one percent or seventy yes. percent. And I would own shares in these companies. And after the devaluation and default of of nineteen ninety eight, these These guys said, well, um, prior to that, they had been approached by all these fancy investment bankers who were wearing suits and and Hermes ties and coming to them and say, listen, if you just we can get you some free money on Wall Street if you just behave yourself. And so they thought, you know, we can we can steal from everybody later. But why don't we just like pretend we're like legitimate businessmen for the moment? And so they behaved themselves up until the crash of 1998. But after the crash, all those bankers on Wall Street, with their fancy ties and so on, stopped taking their calls, and they said, "Well, there's no longer any incentive to behave ourselves." And in Russia, there's never been any disincentive to misbehave, and so these oligarchs embarked on an orgy of stealing, which has been unprecedented in the history of business. How? How did they steal? Well, there's there, that. There, well, there's a variety of different of different methods that they use. They they did. Um, uh, asset stripping, where they would sell assets off of the balance sheet of the company to themselves um, for no money or for like one dollar or you know ten thousand dollars or a billion dollar asset. Um, they would do something called transfer pricing, which were, which were, they were taking like oil that, that that sold in the market for let's say sixty dollars a barrel, and they would sell it to themselves for one dollar a barrel and then sell it on. Um, uh, there was they were doing so. So they're stealing from the shareholders the other shareholders. Right. The so, so they own they own 50% of the company. They're stealing 100% of the profits from Got the company. Right. Yes. And I was sitting there with my shares of the company thinking to myself, wait a second, this is not right and this is not good. And <clears throat> and, and, also I was thinking I'm very ashamed of myself for having lost all this money from my clients. And mm. so I then decided that I was going to effectively go to war with the oligarchs to stop them from stealing from these companies that I was investing in.
2: Now this, this is the point at which you're I mean, I think your book is already been turned into a Hollywood film. But this is the point at which it, it, it becomes spectacular, really, this story. And and what I, I just want a few words from you on how characteristic that is of you, because we, we know a little bit now about your background. We appreciate that with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, you, you should have cashed out sooner at the age of 31. You thought that this success could be sustained forever. Most 31 year olds do. But you're going up against people who you've been very careful to to describe in diplomatic terms, but to all intents and purposes, they're they're, they're gangsters and and criminals and mafiosi. And um, you've decided to pick a very big and very public fight with them. I did. And um, uh, and
3: it was very much driven by um, I guess responsibility. I felt really responsible for having lost all this money. But it and, is and, only
2: money. I mean, uh, uh, it, yeah, it might it, sound it, an old thing to it, say. It,
3: it, but it, it wasn't my money. I had I, yes. gotten all these people into this mess, and I just felt I thought that was wrong and I felt it was bad, and I wanted to do something about it. And I also had this naive belief that because I was a foreigner, somehow they wouldn't do the kind of stuff they normally do to, foreigner, to,
2: to themselves, to me. Because and, you and, could be protected by your own government. At this point, you were a British citizen. You'd renounce your US citizenship. We theoretically would be very robust in defense of a British citizen's interests, and also the media would be free to report what was going on in a way that the Russian media isn't.
3: Well, I I, I felt all those things, and I just thought that they just wouldn't be so brazen as to do anything terrible to a foreigner. And so I thought I had some kind of aura of
2: protection, which which, as we'll see, didn't really happen. But so how did the fight back begin? How did the attempt to re Essentially, to to recover assets that had been stolen from from you and your investors.
3: Well, it, it went unbelievably well, and and, <laughs> <Not> and again. <laughs> and, 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 and and the reason it went it, it was shocking how well it went. So so the way we went about it, first of all, is very important to understand. Is that we would um, we would do research into how they went about the stealing. So I have a great team of analysts, Russian <clears throat> Russian guys who are really really smart and. And in Russia, even though it seems like a not a very transparent place, it's the most bureaucratic country in the world. And because of all the bureaucracy, you can't even go to the bathroom without like filing a form with like three. This different is a ministries. hangover of
2: Stalinism. Exactly, is everything
3: right. is everything is is written down, and and there are people with all these records everywhere. And so, if you want to like find out well, who's stealing, you can just go to the people who are keeping the records. And we went to the people who kept the records, and 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 there's and the people who are stealing were doing it so brazenly they weren't even trying to cover it up, and so. <sighs> We would get all this information. We would put it into neat, clearly laid out PowerPoint presentations.
2: And then I would share it with the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the um, Washington Post. So presumably, when you first started feeding them this stuff, couldn't quite believe what they were seeing, could they? I mean, established financial journalists? Well, the, I mean, first of all, the, the, these guys were generally pretty lazy. Yes. So,
3: so, you know, they were just sitting there in their sure. office waiting for some <laughs> surely, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> they are sitting in their office waiting for some story. You know, they were yeah. like, you know, write up daily, the daily story. And in and, and fact, sometimes they were like you know, sighing with exasperation when I show up because I mean, they have to like do a bunch of work <laughs> to like, you know, like take all the stuff that I've gotten and like verify it or whatever. But, but um, uh, uh, these were explosive. I mean, so for example, we discovered that between 1996 and 1999, the management of Gazprom, which is the largest mm. company in, in Russia, um, the management of this company had stolen oil and gas reserves equal to the size of Kuwait. We discovered it. Nobody knew it. And it's there in black and white. I mean, and it's clear. It... And, 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 and if you will recall, um, we went to war, yes. a quite just war over oil and gas reserves the size of Kuwait being stolen by the Iraqis out of Kuwait. Yes. And so all of a sudden, um, me and a couple of other scraggly guys sitting in, in an office in Moscow discover a similar sized crime. And we report it to the press and the press um, re- writes it up and, and it created a, mas- a a national scandal but here's where so but here's where the story gets interesting is that while we, were, <laughs> while we were doing this, this was the moment that Vladimir Putin had just come to power right. and Vladimir putin, you know he, everyone thinks of him as being the strong man, but he when he first came to power, he wasn't a strong man at all. He was this sort of very short um guy um who uh, didn't have all any levers of power at all. The power had effectively been stolen from him um, by the oligarchs. Mm. and so he was interested in going after the oligarchs. And so we had this strange alignment of interest. And I, I should point out right here, right now, that I've never met Vladimir Putin. I've never spoken to him. But he was fighting with the same guys we were fighting with. They were stealing power from him. They were stealing money from me. And so as a result, every time we would publicize one of these scandals, um, it would get all over the newspapers, and then he would step in. And he stepped in in the case of Gazprom and fired the management of Gazprom that did all the stealing. He stepped in. At the electricity company and stopped a massive asset stripping program organized by the uh, CEO. He step into all these scandals that we created and fix them, and um, and so I ha- it was just the most fantastic thing because um, uh, I was good. not I was not only so and as and by stepping in the share price would go up like a hundred percent or two hundred percent or a thousand percent of all these things and so not only was was I doing good good in business but I was also doing just good in life. I was like making Russia a better place. We were cracking down on the oligarchs, and and you can't imagine the esprit de corps in my office when we would like ex- do one of these big exposés, and then something would happen. It was just like I mean, ever, you know, we would have all been happy to do this for free. It was just so exciting to get the bad guys, and so so we had this spectacular success. And I and I should point out that I went from so remember I, so I started with zero. I went up to a billion dollars. Yeah, it went down to nine. It went down nine hundred million to a hundred million. And then when we started this program, we went from 100 million to four and a half billion. It went up 45 times.
2: So you were better as a regulator than you were as an investor, as, as an original. Um, well, I was pretty investor. great as an investor as well. well. Ca- I mean, well, if you make f- 45
3: but, times your money, that's <laughs> no, but no, that's as a result of the regulating.
2: I mean, because yeah. you have now created businesses that are much better investments by uh, unveiling the corruption. And, and Putin at this point is consolidating his power, his position as a people's champion, a representative of ordinary citizens and also, presumably, at this point, still keen to establish Russia as a, as a more modern country than it had been previously. It, it, it
3: all—it all seemed to be that way. Yes, seems it seems to seemed be. Seemed to me, and 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 I should point out, and I, I can say this clearly and uh, without any shame, that I was wrong. But yes, um, well, I mean, could he not have been in good faith and then then changed? Well, so. So, you know, it seemed, um, the answer is no. Um, and and, and I, I was selective in my interpretation of his actions. I, okay. I, I tended to ignore, I mean, you know, <clears throat> he was busy <clears throat> cracking down viciously on Chechen dissidents and, and and doing a lot of terrible stuff that I chose not to, not to weight those actions in my judgment of him. Okay. And I was very wrong about that. I'm ready to admit that now. But I, at the time, I, I supported him because um, I, I thought, great, you know he's he, you know' he's, we, he and I are cleaning up Russia together. And, and it all felt really good. Um, but it turned out that that our alignment of interests only lasted up to a certain point. And where it, where it completely diverged was at the end of, 2003, um, Putin decided he was going to win his war with the oligarchs. And so uh, what did he do? He took the richest of all the oligarchs, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky. Hortokovsky uh, was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He was worth about $15 billion at the time. And Hortokovsky was landing on his jet in, a, in an airport in Siberia. And Putin ordered his arrest off of that jet. They sent him back to Moscow. They put him on trial. And I should point out that in Russia, when you, when you go on trial, there's a 99.8% conviction rate. Gosh. And so there is no presumption of innocence. And as a result, institutionally, they put in cages In the courtroom so you so the defendants sit in a cage because they figure you're just gonna you're you're, you're already guilty and and in his case they put him in the cage and then they did something unprecedented which was that Putin allowed the television cameras to come into the court and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage now imagine that you're uh, the 17th richest man in Russia At, at that point in time it's the summer of 2004 um, you're on your yacht. You're parked off the Hotel du Cap in mm. Antibes, France. You've just finished up with your mistress in the bedroom. You, you've, you uh, walk out to the living room of your yacht. Um, you've, you get the remote. You flick on uh, the TV and on CNN. There you see a guy far better than you, far more powerful than you, uh, far richer than you, sitting in a cage. What's your natural
2: reaction going you, you, you to be? You don't want to sit in that cage. Did you know now at this point, what he was up to. I, the, I, I wasn't paying attention. Because it was, okay. I was happy. I was happy that, that, that um, the oligarchs were being arrested. Yes, yes, yes. I was
3: happy. They all, I, I said I said one down,
2: 21 20, 20 20 to go.
3: Ago, yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, so but these other oligarchs, they go back to Putin and they say, Vladimir, in the, this is the fall of 2004. Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in that cage? And Putin said, oh, very straightforward. 50%. Not 50% for the Presidential administration of Russia or for the Russian government, but 50% for himself. And that was the moment that Vladimir Putin became the richest man in the world. And that was the moment that our interests completely diverged. Yes. Now, uh, the 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 biggest demonstration of our interests diverging and in, and I should point out that after that moment, I was still doing my thing, I was still yes. exposing corruption in all the companies I was investing in, doing it quite publicly and quite vocally but these people were now mr putin 's allies rather than his enemies they were his business partners fifty uh, yes. fifty and so and it all came very clear to me um <clears throat> not because I was smart but because something happened, which was that i was i I was flying back to Moscow on November thirteenth two thousand five um, I was, um, going to the VIP lounge. I was a VIP. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to that VIP lounge and, and I'd been through that lounge a lot of times before. And it, and what, what happens is you give your passport to the guy at the desk and then you go and sit on a nice plush yes. sofa and they give you a cup of tea and you, you wait a couple minutes, you sip your tea and then they give you your passport back. It was all very dignified. And then you go out and you, you're, you're, you you are you know have to like fight with everybody in line and it's all very nice. So I sat down for my cup of tea and, and, um, uh, and my tea is starting to get cold it's like it's been like uh yes. 45 minutes and then and then they have an, and then an hour and i was like what's going on here and and uh and then eventually uh, four uh, heavily armed border guards come into the VIP lounge they grab me how 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 robustly very ro- I mean i was no longer, this was, this this is no longer an no longer elegant vip before. lounge never you happened. Were, you were grabbed like a common criminal i was i was treated like a common criminal as frog marched down to the detention center of the airport they threw me into the um detention room lock the door and uh, and there I was sitting there in this in this cell in Moscow at the airport wondering what was going on and um, what theories did you have well there's two theories either yes. they were going to arrest me and send me to Siberia or they're going to deport me and send me back to London and the what next- happens
2: if you get sent to Siberia I mean well, you nothing good, oh, you, nothing good at all. A
3: lot of bad stuff happens in. And
2: jail. that could conceivably have happened to a Western businessman. Because yeah. once you're on Russian soil, that's it. Yeah, I mean, they can do anything they want. Yeah.
3: So I was sitting there all night, and I and I um, <clears throat> there was another flight out. When you get, if you're being deported, they always deport you back to the city which you originated in. And so um, there was a flight out to London at eleven in the morning the next morning, and I was, I was. Thinking that that's probably what's going to happen, and I was mm. hoping that that was what's was going to happen, and so I couldn't sleep at all in the night, and I was just getting anxious, and nervous, and wondering why this had happened and what was going on, and and uh, the next morning, I at about nine thirty, I figured this is the time they're gonna, if I'm on an eleven o'clock flight, they're probably going to get me out at nine thirty mm. and process me and whatever, stick me in the lounge, and nine thirty came and went, and and uh, ten o'clock came and went, and I'm starting to get more and more agitated, and. And like I'm, you know, 10:15, I'm thinking, wait a second, you know, they really should be getting me by now, and I'm banging on the door and trying to get their attention, and you know, hey, mm. they're completely ignoring me. 10:30, at this point, I'm fully agitated. I'm thinking, you know, this, I'm not going to London, I'm going to Siberia. 10:40, I'm I'm in a state of raw panic. 10:45, I, I I'm just completely melting yeah. down, uh, and then 10:46, uh, this uh, group four other guards, different shift, grab me. Um, take me back up uh, through the halls of the airport. I don't know, are they taking me out of the plane? Are they taking me, are, are now we go into the paddy wagon or what, what's happening? And then they take a, a quick left through security. We don't have to do any checks or anything like that. And they uh, f- uh, take me onto the airplane in our flight, stick me in a seat in the middle um, and, and then deported. Back to Blighty. Back here without my passport. And, and and I wasn't gonna make a fuss about the passport. I, I was no. just happy to be getting on a keep flight. It, you know, when, it, when I passport. get to London, I'll, you know, <laughs> yeah. lead with the people. Uh, anyways, and, and then I learned, and so the flight took off and I breathed the biggest sigh of relief I've ever breathed in my life. Um, uh, I hadn't eaten or had even any water in 15 hours. And so I devoured this horrible Aeroflot mm-hmm. meal like, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I and I land and and then and then I learned something very interesting about deportation, which is that when when I was leaving the airplane, then the pilot um, handed me my passport. Oh, really? And they 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 step off the plane and hand you your passport because it's the rule of deportation that they have to give you your passport when you're in your home soil. I see. So I got my passport back, went through immigration like nothing ever happened, and uh, how th- surreal. And no. then uh, and here I was in London, and and then I suddenly. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, we we applied to find out why they'd done this, and I got a letter from the, from the uh, Foreign Ministry of Russia saying I had been uh, deported because I was declared to be a threat to national security.
2: Which is nonsense. Well, the only threat to national security was the security of all these guys stealing their money. So, when you were sitting in the cell at the airport, did you know why you were there? I had no idea. R- you didn't just figure out that? Well, I, I mean, it just because you no, still didn't know that, the, that, that these deals with Putin, these understandings had been reached with Putin. I, 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 thought, had, no,
3: I had no idea. I, I thought that maybe this was a mistake. Maybe right. maybe some like one of the uh, one of the mid-level guys we've been fighting with had somehow gotten you know paid some bribe at the airport or something like that.
2: But I had no idea that this was going straight up to the top of the Russian government. But now you did realize that the exposure of the corruption that you had been undertaking, albeit, and you're always very honest about this, albeit that, I mean, I personally believe you would have done it even if it didn't involve the the, the profits that you were accruing as a result of the, you you kind of wanted to get back the money that you'd lost. But equally, now you knew what was going on, the presumption in the Kremlin would be, we won't be hearing from Mr. Browder again anytime soon.
3: Well, that that, that was their, um, perhaps that was their assumption, but my assumption was that um, when the Russians turn on you, they don't tend to do so mildly. They then then tend to do so with extreme prejudice. And I thought being kicked out, okay, that's pretty upsetting. It was gonna ruin my business, but I thought that was a pretty minor sanction compared to what they could do. And I said, well, where do I have, you know, where am I exposed? And I I was exposed in two places. I had a lot of people on the ground in Moscow who worked for me and their families. And I had a lot of money of my clients invested in in Russia. And so I uh, organized an immediate Emergency evacuation of all my staff, and I brought them all here to London.
2: How many people are we talking about?
3: Well, with with family members, about twenty or so. Wow! Um, and we got them all here, and we got them fully normalized here, um, and uh, and then we quickly and quietly liquidated every last share of, of Russian of, of, of stuff we held in Russia, and everyone got out, and all of our money was safe. And I thought, phew, mm. that's th- this will make a good book someday. I'm going to move on to other things. Yes. And I moved on to other things. I set up a new fund to invest in other parts of the world, started investing. All well, my clients were very happy because they had all made a lot of money in Russia and went with me in my new project. Yes. It was all, all very nice. Um, and I thought I was done with Russia. Um, but it turns out that Russia was just getting started with me. And, it was, and what, I, what happened next was the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. And, and uh, 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 basically, 18 months after I was expelled, I was in Paris I was having a board meeting for my new fund. And um, uh, I get a call from from my secretary in Moscow. And I, and I, I should point out that we, the only thing I had left in Moscow was sort of the uh, the, the old office, which I had prepaid for, for for two years. And I had one secretary sitting in the old office. And she called me up and said, Bill, there's um, 25 police officers that have just banged down the door and are raiding our office right now. What should I do? I said, I don't know. Let me call up my lawyer. And I had a lawyer who was an American guy named Jamie Firestone. He ran a law firm in Moscow. I called up Jamie. I said, Jamie, I've got 25 officers in my Moscow office raiding the office. What should I do? And he said, I don't know. He said, I've got 25 officers raiding my office right now looking for your documents. And in his office, they grabbed one of his young lawyers who protested about the raid, beat him to a pulp, um, and, and sent him to the hospital for two weeks because
0: he was...
3: And um, at this point, I was terrified. Uh, you know, all, all these documents had been taken. And the next thing we know, the documents that had been seized by the police had been used to steal our investment holding companies, the companies through which we had invested all of our money in Russia.
2: Because they were certificates of ownership, in a sense. Yeah, they took all the certificates of ownership. <clears throat> As part of a police investigation, and then presented them. Right. So, so, so,
3: and, and, and it gets worse than that. The the, comp- the person who who the companies were, were re-registered into the name of was a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police to put his name on the documents. So the police seized our documents, used them with a murderer to steal our companies. And they were empty, of course. Yes. The companies didn't have any money in them, but the police didn't know that. So at this point, I'm terrified. I'm not terrified for any economic reason. We've got our money safe.
2: Or, or because you've got anything to hide in terms of...
3: No, so I, I was terrified because because the police were working with murderers to steal stuff, and God knows what else they're going to do. Yes, and so I, I go out and I hire the smartest lawyer I, I knew in Russia, it was a young man named Sergey Magnitsky. Sergey at the time was thirty-five years old, and he was just genuinely the smartest guy around. And he was one of these people that could do ten things in the time it took others to do one. Just a real a, a real quality class act, solid person. And I said to Sergey, please. Help me figure out what's going on here. This is terrifying and help me stop it because I, I, I don't know what these people are up to, mm. but I just don't want to have anything to do with it. I need it to stop.
2: So you, you would have been comfortable establishing enough to feel confident that you are now finished with Russia. You weren't looking to restart a, a battle or to, 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 just, to settle old scores. You just wanted to walk safely down the streets of London knowing that you weren't going to get a call from Russia again. Exactly. Okay. And so Sergei goes out and investigates. And he comes back. Tell me a bit more about Sergei, first, because you, you mentioned his brilliance and his brain. Did he have a, 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 a crusading element to his personality, or no? He was a tax lawyer, right? He, he, I mean, he was
3: he, he he was an idealist. Okay, he was one of these pedantic idealists. He, he like believed in a better world. Um, he was he was not at all um, ruined by sort of previous generations of Russian cynics. Um, he had a family, um, two kids, mm. a wife. He came from the provinces. He was like one of these sort of small town boys who made good. You know, he's, he sort of you know, rose to a, a high level on, on the back of his own hard work and smarts. And, and just a really decent sort of, you know, the guy who buys his Starbucks in the morning and mm. works hard and, you know, goes to the office at 8.30 and, you know, comes out at 11 o'clock at night. It's the kind of person who, you, when you have a problem, you go to, you call him up at 8 at night with your problem. And the next morning, there's like a perfectly drafted memo in your inbox, wow. like solving your problem. And he's just there for you. Just a really uh, just the kind of person that you know you, you wish that every person in your life yes. was like that and very unfortunately very few people are but Sergey was one of them and and uh, and Sergey um, goes out and he investigates and he comes back and he says there were two there were two parts of this whole crime. the first part was they wanted to steal all of your money but um, not having
2: realized that you'd got right. it all out of the country and and he because fa- you're an international investor in their goons in police uniform
3: right. And, and, and what he found was that they had go, raided all of our banks after they, after they um, uh, uh, took all these documents, when, after the, the office raid, looking for our money, all our banks in Moscow, and they didn't find anything there. And so they didn't get any of our money. And so I thought, well, good, okay. That's, that's satisfying. <laughs> and, uh, and then Sergey said, however, that there was a second part of this scam, and this they did succeed in. And, and he said, this is the most cynical thing I've ever seen. And the second part of it was, was that when, when we had been exiting Russia, when we had been selling all of our stock, we had a huge profit. We had a billion dollars profit that year. And we paid to the Russian government in that year $230 million of capital gains tax to the Russian government. And what Sergei discovered was that these people who stole our companies, which consisted of government officials and criminals working together, they took those companies to the Russian tax office. And they, they, fi- they said to the tax office, there was a mistake made in the previous year tax filing, that these companies didn't make a billion dollars. They made zero. And therefore, the $230 million of taxes that was paid was paid in error. And they, they, so they said, we would like to have the $230 million of taxes refunded to us. Now well, this is quite sophisticated. Isn't this is it? very sophisticated. Yes. And, and, and in fact, I, we don't have time in this show to go into how they went about it, but it was sure. remarkably sophisticated. I mean, it was, it was just like almost genius. Yes. And, and um, so they, they applied for a $230 million tax refund. And I should point out that that was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. Good grief. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas. And it was approved and paid out the next day, Christmas Eve. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you had a $5,000 tax refund yeah, that you were so applying for, it would take you 20 years. Of course <clears throat> but, but a $230 million tax refund, the largest in history, takes one day on Christmas Eve. So Sergei and I were 100% certain that this must be a rogue operation. We were both under the impression that Vladimir Putin was a nationalist, a patriot, a guy fighting for Russia, mm. and that he couldn't possibly allow for $230 million of money to be stolen from his own government. Yes. This was not our money. This was the government's money that was stolen. And we figured, Sergey and I, that if we just brought this to the right level of attention, this theft, that the good guys would get the bad guys. And that would be the, the, that's where the story would end. And so we filed criminal complaints with every different law enforcement agency in Russia. We, um, I went to the newspapers and to the, to the television and to the radio. And then Sergei went to the Russian FBI, the Russian, um, it's called the Russian State Investigative Committee, and he gave sworn testimony against the police officers who conducted the raid. And we sat back, and we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. And it turns out that in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. About five weeks after Sergei testified against these officials, the same officials he testified against came to his home on November 24th, 2008. They raided his house, turned it upside down, and then they took Sergei into custody and put him in, in, in pretrial detention, and where, they, where he was then uh, tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers.
2: How did you learn that he was in custody? I got the phone call from, from one of the other
3: lawyers that we worked with. We had a, bun- we had a team of Russian lawyers, And um, it was all, it was all happening in sort of real time. And we, and he had called his lawyer and so on Mm. and so forth. And so we learned that he he went into custody and it was the most horrible feeling because everything up until this point was effectively virtual. Other than my own sort of brief 15 hours of incarceration, everything else was was virtual. It's all stuff in newspapers, all legal filings, all. And now all of a sudden here's a guy who's sitting in a Russian jail. And he's sitting in a russian jail effectively because and only because he was my lawyer and it was terrible and and then and I, I we had a bunch of other russian lawyers who were here in london who had fled while all this stuff was going on and and uh one in particular was a specialist criminal lawyer and i asked him what's it like in a russian prison and, and it's not you know what he what he told me was a really pretty horrifying horrifying uh description of what was life was going to be like for Sergey. So
2: he did withdraw his testimony. No, he, not, he did not. So even, what, so what happened? After. Was,
3: so they, they put him
2: in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds. Why do you think he didn't? Um, I, know, I know, obviously, it would have involved lying, but just in terms of most of us probably wonder what we would do in similar circumstances. And he was...
3: Well, they, they asked him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers, and they wanted him to sign a false confession. Right. And they wanted him sign a false confession to
2: say that he stole the $230 million and he did so on my instruction. So it was provable that the $230 million had gone. Yeah. So they had to account for where it had gone. He has told the authorities where it has gone. So almost as to close the circle. their conspiracy involved making him say he took it.
3: Right. They wanted to put a nice ribbon on it. Yes. Put him in jail. Put out an Interpol arrest warrant for me. And, and then everyone can go and spend their money freely, buy some yachts and yeah. condos and, and, and sports cars, <clears throat> and, and it's all a nice little ribbon on it. Yes. But Sergei refused to do that, and they just okay. started to really put the screws to him. They, they um, put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in, in December in Moscow. How were you finding this out? How does this information reach you? Well, Sergei was a very unusual prisoner for them in that um, he wrote it all down. Yes. Sergey, every time they would violate his rights, he would write a criminal complaint
2: against the authorities saying who did what to him, where, how, when and why. Because this, this is the idealist who believes that order and consistency will eventually provide fairness. He was this, he, he just thought the law would protect him.
3: And every day he would write one of these complaints, sometimes twice a day, and once a month or so he'd get a meeting with his lawyer and he'd, ha- he'd hand over a stack of these complaints. His lawyer would file them and they would either be denied or ignored but we got copies of them. And so in relatively real time, not exactly real time, we would get this, these reports yeah. of what was happening
2: to him. And it was just horrific. Well, tell me more. How did it feel? Because you can't escape, and I know you don't. The, the, the knowledge that it's because of you that he's there. It was terrible. And so, I mean,
3: I, 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 you know, I would wake up in, uh, in my comfortable bed and I would just feel terrible laying in my comfortable bed. I would feel terrible taking a shower knowing that he couldn't take a shower. It was impossible to go through life knowing that he—I mean—he was, was like a voodoo doll that they were poking, mm. and I could feel every every poke, every needle that went into him, and it was just the most horrible thing because he shouldn't have been in jail. The only reason he was in jail was because he was looking after my interests, and and um, and he was being, doing it honorably. And I would have been happy if he had. Done something to try to, to try to end this. Sim-
2: if, if he could have saved himself, but as you've explained, he would not have ended up saving himself, really. So you must simultaneously, while suffering this um, knowledge, you must have been conscious that there aren't really any circumstances in which he could be released. Well, I I, I I didn't believe that, and I believe that there was, if I could put pressure on 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 Russia
3: from the West again, that that perhaps yes. that that would get him out. And so I went to the Council of Europe, which is uh, this big human rights body in, in Strasbourg that, that were in which Russia is a member um, and they did a, an investigation and they, they wrote a report saying that this was totally illegal what had happened to Sergei I went to the British government who didn't do a whole lot of anything um, I went to the US, um, the, US has, uh, the US Congress has something called like the US Helsinki Committee I gave testimony there highlighting his case I went to the Washington Post etc but none of these things had any impact they, they were determined uh, they were determined to keep Sergei in jail he was effectively a hostage. Mm. Um, in this situation. And and they were not just determined to keep him
2: in jail, they are determined to uh, effectively torture him in jail. Which obviously impacts fairly quickly upon his health. Correct. So after six
3: months or so, um, Sergey uh, develops terrible pains in his stomach. He ends up losing 20 kilos, and he's diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. And the operation was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. And about a week before the operation, um, they come to him again and asked him again to sign this false confession. And again, he refuses. And in retaliation for refusing to sign this false confession, they then move him from a prison that had a medical facility where they were gonna do the operation to a different prison called Butyrka. And Butyrka is famous in Russia for being one of the most harsh uh, prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, There were no medical facilities there and at butyrka sergey's health completely broke down he went into constant agonizing ear piercing pain and they refused him medical attention he and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system in russia begging for medical attention and every one of their requests was either ignored or in some cases denied in writing they denied in writing this this sick man's desperate request for medical attention and after um several months of this <clears throat> and i should point out that we, we, if you have gallstones or pancreatitis here in london mm. if you get it in the morning you know by noon um uh, uh you're in the a and e mm. and 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 you you know and, the, and and you're getting morphine because it's so painful three months untreated pancreatitis it's the most sadistic thing you could ever imagine And on the night of November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance to a different prison called Metroshka Tishina, which is on the other side of Moscow. The ambulance takes him to this new prison. Um, But instead of putting him in the emergency room when he arrives at Metroshka Tishina, they put him in an isolation cell, they chain him to a bed, And then eight riot guards with rubber batons go into the cell and beat Sergei with rubber batons until he died. That was November 16th, uh, 2009, eight years ago. Um, Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. And he died basically as my proxy. I got the news the very next morning, it was the 17th of November, at 7.45 a.m., and it was the most heartbreaking news. It was was like a knife going right into my heart. And I've never had such traumatic, life-changing news before in my life. And when I finally was able to sort of think clearly, it became obvious to me that I only had one choice in my life, which was to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And I made a vow to his memory, to his family and to myself that I wasn't going to stop until they did face justice. That's what I've been doing for the last eight years.
2: And this involves chiefly identifying and seeking to sanction the precisely the sort of oligarchs, not just the people responsible for Sergei, but also some of the other kleptocrats that have... Triumph in Vladimir Putin's Russia to prevent them from enjoying the fruits of their crimes by spending freely and traveling freely in Western countries. Well, so so
3: originally we thought maybe there's a chance of getting justice in Russia. Yes, because this was a very high-profile murder. There, everybody knew about it. It was in all the papers. Just a shocking, shocking thing. Um, but Putin personally got involved in the cover-up. Um, he personally exonerated every person involved. Um, uh, the, the Putin regime gave special promotions and state honors to some of the people who were most complicit, and then three years after they killed Sergei Magnitsky, they put him on, on trial. It was the first time in the history of Russia they put a dead man on trial.
2: <clears throat> they put me on trial as his co-defendant. In in so you for him it was posthumous for you it was in absentia. Yeah, and and they had two empty seats. But no in the, one in, in the dock. So there there
3: was a judge, there was a there was there <laughs> there was a judge, there was a prosecutor. There was defense attorneys. There, uh, there there, was the bailiffs. Why do a, they do that?
2: Why, why, why do they do when it's so obviously bogus? Do the, it was a show trial, a Stalin show
3: trial. <laughs> that's why they did it. And they did it just to sort of make their point that, yes. you know, that, that not only, you know, were they right, but they were going to convict him even after he, yeah. they killed him. and um, Because if they don't, then that $230 million still has to be accounted for. Right, exactly. And the, and that, that's it's all about money. All Everything's right. about money. And, and But that's the key. It's about money. Mm. And so once we understood that this was about money and it was about 230 million, it came, it, th- that's when the light bulb went yes. off in my head. And I said, okay, this is about money. And and you see these people, you, you see them here in London spending their money. Mm. You know, these Russians, you never heard of them, like with r- driving around in Maybox and mm. buying up, you know, 30 million pound houses in Belgravia and filling up the shops with their girlfriends and their wives. It's all about the money and all that money is, is, is dirty money, is blood money from Russia. And so I came up with this idea, which is that if these people, you know, we, we can't prosecute them in London for a murder that took place in, in, in Moscow, but we don't have to let them come here and, and use the banking system and spend their money. I came up with this idea let's freeze their assets and ban their visas in the West. And I first took this idea to Washington and I went to meet with a Democratic senator from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and a Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. And I said, I told them the same story I've shared with you today, and I said, why don't we ban the visas and freeze the assets of these people who killed Sergei? And they said, yes, let's do that. And they came up with something called the Magnitsky Act, which does exactly that. And the first version of the Magnitsky Act just went after the people who killed Sergei. They put it on the books as a proposed legislation. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all these other victims came forward and said, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you sanction the people who killed my brother, my mother, my aunt, my nephew? And they got about 12 of these approaches. And they said, wait a second. We're onto something much bigger than just one case. We found the new technology for dealing with this. And so they added 65 words to the law to include all gross human rights abusers in Russia. And this thing just took off like a rocket. And it went for a vote about two years after it was introduced in in November of 2012. And it passed the U.S. Senate 92 to 4. It then passed the House of Representatives with 89%. And President Obama, who I should point out, was not enthusiastic about this because this was going to upset and provoke Russia. Of course. And he didn't want to do that. But he was forced to because how could he he he, 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 could, he couldn't it was veto proof in that the, the way that the u.s system works and so on the 14th of december 2012 he signed it into law and putin just went out of his mind how do you know because the very next day putin banned the adoption of russian orphans yeah. by american families and let me just point out what that means they weren't putting up the healthy orphans for adoption they were putting up the ones who were sick the yes. ones with HIV, with uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, with sp- uh, Down syndrome, spinal bifida. These were children who effectively were, were like nobody wanted them. But the Americans came with open arms and open hearts and, and, and adopted like thousands of these, of these sick orphans and brought them back to America and nursed them to health. And these children, if they stayed in Russia um, in the orphanage, they don't have any resources, would die. And so effectively, Putin was, was sentencing his own orphans to death in order to make a political point to protect his corrupt regime. And that was the first way we know that, that, that he was upset. But the second thing is he, he actually made it a, 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 his national policy to fight against these Magnitsky sanctions. And we know specifically how upset he was because when Donald Trump had become the, the Republican nominee, Putin sent one of his agents to meet with Trump with one ask and one ask only. Not, not Not Donald Trump, he met with Donald Trump's son, Donald yes. Trump Jr., and this woman, this lawyer, went in to ask for one thing, which was to repeal the Magnitsky Act.
2: Which leaves us possibly with more questions than answers about what what follows. Um, and I'm quite glad, actually, that that we're gonna end this interview in, in, in five or six minutes with everybody who's listened to it thus far wanting to know more because they can go out and buy red notice and they can follow the passage of the Magnitsky Act because the latest chapter in this story has only just been written. The, the, the Canadian Senate passed the Magnitsky Act this month. So C- Canada passed the Magnitsky Act unanimously earlier this month. Um, so that's another massive territory, English-speaking Western territory, where the kleptocrats associated with the Kremlin will not be able to spend their ill-gotten gains or even live. Or, or, in, or indeed.
3: And, and I should point out that
2: the UK also passed a, a, a partial version of the Magnitsky Act in May of last year. Why did they only pass a partial version? And why did, in your view, as a British citizen, why didn't the UK lead the line on this instead of following in the wake of the American government?
3: I believe that this country is, is levitating off of a sea of dirty money from Russia. And I think there's a lot of people in the political establishment, who are benefiting from these criminals, and it was—it was—it was like pulling teeth, getting a partial version of the Magnitsky Act passed. We and we were able to to pass to to get what's called a Magnitsky Amendment to the yes. Criminal Finance Bill, which allows the British government to. Freeze assets of human rights abusers. They have y- not yet implemented that that's in any in any in any way, shape, or form, and are unlikely to in the current. Political well, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be a pain in their backside I until think, they do, because that's, that's what I do, and <laughs> and, and, and I hope that I, uh, you'll you'll give me a platform here there or is. elsewhere to continue to be there that, is. because um, uh, it's only it's only with public shaming that that um, that this government
2: and other governments as well seem to do the right thing, and and the the sense or the theory is that particularly in London now, and you mentioned associations with politicians here, there are so few people spending this kind of money at a time of, well, certainly post 2008, economic difficulty. And arguably, the Conservative Party establishment is more likely to have friends and donors and associates in the kind of businesses where people with 30 or 40 million pounds to spend might be doing some business that they don't want to they don't poison want- the wealth no they, they, this is the golden goose and I
3: actually point out this doesn't benefit this this has no benefit for 999999 percent of this country but there's a few well placed lords and and uh, other individuals that are on the payroll and and they have a lot of influence and um you know they're effect- effectively you know these concierges for the uh uh for the russian oligarchs and they have a, a disproportionate amount of weight to make to make these things not happen and and, uh, and, and access of course I- indeed and and so this is a real tough nut to crack. We have a second piece of legislation which we're trying to get through, which will be freezing the, or banning the visas of these people so they can't come here, because they love to come here. Of course. They, they love it here. Yes. And um, I, I'm working hard on that now, and I'm hoping that, that um, I succeed in that. And I think I will be able to succeed in that, um, but it's, it's, it's a heavy lift no matter how you It's you your life's work. It. This is all I do. I, I'm, not, I'm not, no longer doing business. I'm a full-time human rights
2: activist fighting for justice for Magnitsky and for others now using this policy, this tool. And this is how we began our conversation today. This Canadian passing of the act is why you were put on the Interpol wanted list again, because, of course, that trial that was conducted when you weren't there, when Sergei was convicted posthumously and you were convicted in absentia, is still in a sense, well, it is still on the books, if you like.
3: So I've been sentenced to nine years on the back of that one, but
2: I'm on trial again right now
3: in Russia. Congratulations. As we speak, a second trial. They've accused me of murder. They've accused me of espionage. They've accused me of fraud. They've accused me of every crime under the sun. Uh, Putin is going out of his mind. I've really gotten under his skin. And I know for sure that's the case, because right after the Canadian Magnitsky Act was passed, um, Putin was asked about the Canadian Magnitsky Act, and he went off on a, a rant about me. He was calling me a criminal and calling me all sorts of names personally. And Putin doesn't ever name names right. names. I've gotten so much under his skin. And why? And because he won't be able to if, if because he he's got $200 billion of net worth. Held in Western banks and other people's names. and He thinks that money is going to get frozen and under the Magnitsky Act. Right. And it would all have been for nothing. Exactly. All this all the killing all these people, imprisoning all these people, hostage taking. All, all of that would have been for nothing if his money gets frozen in the West.
2: And he can only, he can only call that money back in if he retains power, Correct. because the people in whose names it is deposited Correct. are frightened of his position rather than his person. He, he, he can never leave power. Um,
3: he's in an untenable situation that there's, there, there's not, he can't go and set up the Vladimir Putin presidential library and enjoy mm. his $200 billion. He's got to stay in power. Otherwise, he goes to jail, loses his money, and perhaps worse.
2: So, that, that was October the 21st. I mean, literally three weeks ago, when you were placed on that arrest list again. Your U.S. visa was, a, it was revoked, uh, banning you from the United States. But in, in the swings and roundabouts, the seesaw of this story, that even that doesn't stick. Well, so,
3: I mean, so, so, so first of all, Inter- so he goes to Interpol for the fifth time. Let me point out the fifth, time. fifth time Interpol has rejected him four times before, but he's like, he's got all these like technicians back in Moscow mm. gaming their system. He puts me on the Interpol list for a fifth time. I discover it because I was, I, I have something called global entry, which allows you to, to cut in the line in the U S um, okay. and, and I got a le- I got an uh, automatic email from, from the U S department of Homeland security saying there's been a change to your global entry status. So I go into the system, find out that my global entry has been revoked. I,
2: I, I, as a direct consequence of Interpol acceptance. Well, I didn't know. You. I didn't know.
3: I didn't know what, didn't right. know what had happened. Okay. So then, then, then I go to, um, I go to, I, I, to travel to America uh, as a British citizen. You need something called an ESTA, which is a, a visa waiver, and so I, I booked a flight to see if my ESTA would work, and the ESTA had been cancelled. Wow! Wow! And at that point, then I made some calls to to friends in law enforcement, and they said, um, "You're on the Interpol list." <clears throat> so, um, at this point, I. Um, uh, I raised a huge stink, and all the newspapers picked it up. And, yes. and then Senators McCain and Cardin, my two um, uh, the, the two partners in yes. the exercise to get the Magnitsky Act passed, you know, raised uh, hell in Washington and said, "What, what are we? We're, we're banning the guy who who did the Magnitsky Act because uh, Russia put him on the Interpol list." That's that's absurd, and mm. outrageous. And so, within three hours, the Department of Homeland Security um, reversed their decision. And then it took Interpol about nine days before they reversed their decision. And so now I'm right back to where I started. I went to Canada, and this is a very uh, nice way to end our talk. I went to Canada with Sergei Magnitsky's widow and his son. And his son is 16 years old, his name is Nikita. And Nikita is an artist who's he's a very talented young man, a, great, a straight-A student, but also an artist. And and Nikita had painted a painting, um, a very beautiful painting um, for the Prime Minister of Canada. I just to thank him for um, for for. Uh, recognizing this, his family's sacrifice and I went to Canada, I took them there and among other things he was able to meet with the Prime Minister and we have a beautiful picture of him handing over the painting to um, uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada and then afterwards um, we went and sat in the gallery of the Parliament and, and uh, uh, one of the sponsors of the bill introduced the um, Magnitsky family and the entire f- Parliament stood up of 270 people and gave the Magnitsky family a two minute standing ovation.
2: You're right, that would have been a beautiful point at which to finish. But I thought, because I haven't seen you for a while, I thought that recent developments might have knocked the stuffing out of you with regard to the allegations of involvement of Russian interference in the American election, in, in the Brexit vote, perhaps. This, um, I, the only reason I think I understand it is your theory that Putin has to disrupt the West, otherwise his own people eventually will start asking questions about what's going on in Russia. But you seem, if anything, well, you you seem more upbeat. Perhaps than last time. I well,
3: spoke. well, Putin is, is showing his cards to everybody. Yes. There's no mystery anymore. I mean, I found it the most frustrating thing for me was going around and having everyone say, you know, we really need to work with Putin. We need to like, uh, yes. and, and we're now coming to the conclusion slowly and, and not everybody is there yet that this is a criminal. Vladimir Putin is a mafia criminal who needs to be contained, not engaged with. Doesn't mean we don't have diplomatic relations with Russia, but this is a man you need to contain. You need to cut off his degrees of freedom. You can't allow him to manipulate elections. You can't allow him to, to pervert our justice system. You can't allow him to launder his money in our banks. And, and that has to be the conclusion people come to. And, and, and so, we're, I mean, we're much more there now than we were last time I saw you when everybody was just sort of, sort of like, you know, you, you knew there was a sickness,
2: but it hadn't come out yet. Now that all the symptoms are there, it's just a question of how you treat this sickness. Well, you are. I guess one of the leading doctors in that process, <laughs> Bill Bradder, It's always a real pleasure. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm joined now by the producer of Unfiltered, Richard. And, and I think we'll do things the other way around, actually, because I knew most of that story already, and I, 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 I consider Bill Bradder to be a friend of mine. What did you make of that? <sighs> so, looks like... <laughs> I'm kind of my heart's still racing a little bit like we just came out of that I feel like I've just come back from the cinema I've just been (laughs) sat in like a Tom Clancy film or something like that that was the most amazing story I've ever heard like so there was a bit at the beginning sort of about 20 minutes in when he was talking about Russia taking this oil that was kind of like yeah. the size of QA and he said and here's where it gets interesting <laughs> and, I was, I, and I was in the control room and I laughed like that yeah, So I was like too. oh well how could this get any more bloody it? hell isn't it, isn't it though <laughs> absolutely blew my mind and the only the are two more things to say it's the only way I've been able to make sense it doesn't mean it is the absolute answer to the question but the only way I've been able to make sense of Of these um, apparent interferences in Western democracy is Putin's desperate attempt to to shore up his position at home, because the only Mm. people that can topple him, as happened to his crony in Ukraine, are the Russian people. So any instability in the West, whether it's a a sociopath in the White House or whether it's a damaging vote to leave the European Union, is great for him because it it allows Mm. him to point at the West and say, well, look, they're a mess as well. Don't you hold this against me. But the thing that really surprised me was that was that Bill Browder was actually on, on quite an upbeat mood yeah. at the moment. And, of course, it's completely easy to understand why, because the, the mask is slipping for Vladimir Putin and the truth yeah. is finally beginning to emerge. It really is. For people like me and other people listening that perhaps don't know so much about Russia and you hear a lot about Putin and you think, oh, yeah, he's a bad guy, but like that really sort of pulled back the curtain on, on the Wizard of Oz there. Like he's, he's, he, I don't want to say he's a criminal in case, you know, russia getting to pull onto me as well but <laughs> it's but a bit late he's but a bit shady sh- to say uh, the least. a bit shady to say the least So <laughs> take on that bombshell <laughs> cheers Rick. cheers